comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Happy New Year. It's really good to be with you. Um, I've been waiting for this day to come to get to preach again. Um, I am regularly amazed at how Nathan uh, reads the text and picks hymns for us that fit. And I want to highlight this verse in Poor Sinners Dejected with Fear. It's on page six of that order of worship. You can just listen to it if you want. Um, I'm going to ask you in a minute if you are teachable. And unless we grasp the reality of this verse, I'm fairly convinced that we're not going to be teachable. Listen to what it says. It says, Poor sinner, dejected with fear, unbosom thy mind to the Lamb. No wrath on his brow he does wear. Nor will he poor mourners condemn. His arm of omnipotent grace is able and willing to save. A sweet and a permanent peace he will freely and faithfully give. We gather in God's presence and he proclaims to us Forgiveness for our sins. Family, do you believe that your sins are forgiven? And if you do, the only right response is to let go of your guilt, to receive that forgiveness, and to rest in his word. Will you rest with me as I pray for us? Father in heaven, we praise you that you know us and you love us. We praise you, Father, that you have called us to cry out to you. And Father, there are a handful of us that just are overwhelmed today because you have heard our prayers and you have so graciously met us. Father, and in your sovereignty, there are also some of us here for whom we have been crying out for a long time. And we wonder if you hear us at all. Father, our perspective of you having heard us or our perspective of you not having heard us comes face to face, word to word, impact to impact against your 
very word that says you delight in the prayers of your people and that you hear us and that you hold our tears in a bottle and that you know us and that you delight in making yourself known to us. Father, we confess to you that our faith is fragile, that we come before you as those in deep, deep need. And Father, we praise you that regularly and in this passage, maybe especially, you remind us that you meet us in our need and you give us grace. Father, I pray for the women and the men that you have gathered here today. These women created in your image. These men created in your image. I pray that you would convince us of your love for us and that you delight in making yourself known. And Father, I pray that today would be a day for those who are sitting here who wondered if you're possibly going to make yourself known to them, that you would make yourself known, that you would pour yourself out, that you would give us your spirit to see Christ and seeing him that we would be changed. Father, we confess to you our, our, our minds are preoccupied with the start of a new semester. I pray for the college students who are here who are about to leave home and about to go back. I pray for those college students who have already left. I pray for those college students who are among us who have left their homes and come to us and are ready for a new semester. Father, would you pour your mercy out on them? Would you set them free, able to study able to live the life that you've called them to live by convincing them that you've forgiven them, that you love them, that they belong to you. And Father, I pray that we who are in turmoil as we witness and read and experience the chaos of the world around us, the wars, and how those wars spill over into the places of peace that we live and the chaos affects us day in and day out. Lord Jesus, would you please speak into that chaos? Would we remember that you are the one who is able to command the winds that we hear even now be still and they are still? And would we, created in your image, look at you and would we be changed? Father, meet us each of us where we are, remind us that you're at work. Thank you that it's not by accident that any of us happened into this room today. But it is by your invitation. It is by your volition. It is for your glory. And it is for our good that we are here. And so, Father, please now open our ears that we would hear what you have to say on this first day of the week. And would you encourage us by the truth of the gospel, we pray. And it's in Christ's name that we pray all these things. Amen. All right, you can open your Bibles if you want to. I would love for you to do that. It's Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at this first set of Beatitudes. It starts in verse 2 uh, of Matthew chapter 5. I believe it's on page 809 of those blue pew Bibles. Don't worry, we're not going to make it through the whole Beatitudes today. I'm not going to affect or try to do that. We have three sermons for the Beatitudes, and we're super excited to take our time as we press into these Beatitudes. This is the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. First impressions matter, don't they? First impressions matter. Do you know that uh, of what people think about you, 90% of it was generated in their first impression of you? 
If you hang out with me long enough, uh, you'll be, you'll, your, your, your thoughts of me will be generated by all kinds of different things. But, but we are told that first impressions matter. You know, there's something different here about first impressions when they're codified for us in Scripture. Jesus isn't trying to impress you in these Beatitudes. Not here. It's us who come to meet him here and maybe to meet him again. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We saw that. Nathan preached on that last week from chapter 4 and then as Harmony read into chapter 5 last week. We saw that this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We read in, chapters four, in chapter 4 that Jesus began by preaching. He proclaimed, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He called disciples to himself and he began healing people. He began restoring brokenness in this world. And people who did not have hope before, hope generated in them. He said, repent for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is here. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We read in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus saw the crowds, and when he did, he went up onto a mountain. Now again, Matt, Nathan explained to us last week that Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. This idea of seeing crowds and going up on a mountain reminded them of Moses and reminded them of the fact that Moses said, there will be a prophet like me who will come from among you, and when he comes, listen to him. And Jesus takes on that picture and he goes up on the mountain and he sits down. Now look at it. Sitting down is the posture of authority. Nathan referenced at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that people recognized that Jesus was speaking with authority. When he sat down on the mountain, they recognized that he was speaking with authority. And his disciples, it says, came to him. Right? I want to ask a question to start with. Where are you in relation to Jesus? Seriously, think about this just for a minute today. Where are you in relation to this one who is seated on the mountain who we are about to hear from? Like the disciples, have you come to him? Maybe like some of those who watch from afar, are you standing and wondering, will I sit, will I not sit, will I listen, will I not listen? Are you one who passes by and says, I'm not going up there, I'm not listening? Because in the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we are told that his disciples come to him, and it begs the question, what is our relation to Jesus? And here again, we see Jesus' preaching. We're told that in chapter 4, he preached very simply, repent. That means to turn around. That means to turn back again. The Sermon on the Mount is written for us so that we might be able to turn back again and discover anew and afresh every time we look at it who Jesus is, that the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus has said. Immediately in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introduces tension and conflict. Do you know anything about those things in your life? Tension and conflict? <laughs> oh, my word. This week has been a week of tension and conflict in my life. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Do you know that line from Handel's Messiah? Jesus, the king 
of the kingdom of heaven has come into the kingdom of the world and has introduced tension. We are going to see in this that these two worlds collide because Jesus enters into them. The king is present. And what we see is the grace and the mercy of our God. And as we look at this, I just have one more question to ask you. Are you teachable? Are we teachable? When is the last time that you read something that changed your mind? That changed your behavior? The question that's before us as we come to the Sermon on the Mount is, are you teachable? Are we teachable? And again, before you think that I mean by me or by Nathan, I mean only in proxy, right? The question is, are you teachable by Jesus? Does he have the ability to correct you? Because the Sermon on the Mount is the beginning, and it begins with blessing. I just want us to look at these three blessings and how they culminate in the fourth, and that's all I want to do today. We're going to cover the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in just a minute. I want us to look at these three blessings and how they culminate in the fourth. These four blessings that describe the inner disposition of the Christian with regard to self and the world around us in light of Jesus or in light of the kingdom of God having come in. Let me say that one more time. These first four Blessings. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, and who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These four describe the inner disposition of the followers of Jesus with regard to the self and the world around us when we are in the presence of Christ. As I said before, there's an immediate contrast, right? And we see it in the blessings. Look at those first three blessings. They say, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. And it's an immediate contrast with what the world says are blessings to us, right? Where have you heard this message on a commercial lately during the Super Bowl? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, right? We don't hear them. Blessings in this world have to do with happiness, possession, lack of suffering, right? That's when we know we're blessed in this world, right? We know we're blessed when we don't suffer. But Jesus, from the very beginning, introduces contrast, introduces tension. It's tough. So look at these with me really quickly, these three. I want to look at these three together and tell you how they culminate into the fourth, then we're done. All right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It comes with a blessing and then it is followed by a promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is to be needy, is to know our own dependence on something outside of our self, to be reliant on something that isn't ours, to be incapable, as it were, 
Jesus said the kingdom of God is only for those who are like children. And children are often saying, will you help me? I can't get it myself. (laughs) Children are the ones who say, I can't do it. Will you do it for me? To be poor in spirit is like Elijah or like Isaiah when he comes into the presence of God. And remember, what is happening here in the Sermon on the Mount is the very presence of God among his people. And what does Isaiah say in Isaiah chapter 6? He says, depart me from me, Lord, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. you got to go away as poor in spirit. Remember what Jesus did? When he came to Peter and he asked him, will you throw your nets on that side of the boat? And Peter does that at the very beginning of Jesus' relationship with Peter. And Peter pulls in all these fish, right? And what does Jesus, what does Peter say to Jesus? He says the same thing. He says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. To be poor in spirit is to know our need. But look at the promise that comes along with that. The promise is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's less about a future or a present tense of the verb, and it's more about the certainty of the reality of the promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, even at the very beginning of the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying, look, you are saved not by what you do, but you are saved by my action in your life. Salvation, gift of the kingdom of heaven, as it is said here, is by grace, not by merit. It is by being poor in spirit. The psalmist says the same thing in Psalm 127 when he says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. God is the one who is at work in those of us who are needy, sinful, Those of us who are dependent, who do not have what it takes, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, is that you? Is that me? Do we recognize our poverty of spirit? I have a quick question for you that might bring clarity. Where do you turn to first for the solutions in your life? Politics or prayer? Now, look, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be politicians. We absolutely ought to be politically involved. But where do we turn first, you guys? Do we turn first to solutions that human beings can bring to whatever problem that we give? Or do we turn to prayer? Listen, I'm going to twist the screws a little bit. The worst attended meeting of this entire church is Wednesdays at prayer. Now, look. I know that there's tons of prayer that happens in this church outside of Wednesdays. Not everybody can come on a Wednesday morning. You guys live all over the place, and you've got lives, and you've got family. But the question begs to be asked, do we look at the reality of Jesus coming into this world, and do we turn to prayer of our need and our dependence? Or do we try to settle things and solve things ourselves? Man, this one was convicting this week. The second beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn. And the promise is that they will be comforted. What does it mean to mourn? Well, if we are poor in spirit, it probably means for us to mourn over the spirituality, to spiritually mourn as well. We are all going to be crying throughout this life. Some of us have shed a lot of tears this week. 
My dad lost his sister this week. He's shedding tears even now. Everyone loses people. So what does it mean for us to mourn? What it means is there our response to the engagement of recognizing the brokenness in ourselves and in the world around us. That idea of poverty of spirit. To actually engage the poverty of spirit in a response of mourning. The recognition of loss. The recognition that this world is not supposed to be this way. The promise is that we would be comforted. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen, if you will engage your poverty of spirit, the poverty of spirit in the world that is around you, if you will engage with that and allow it to sink in, allow the morning to impact you, to allow it to impact me, instead of, what are the other options that we do? How many of us love to run away? We run away from pain. We see people in pain and we go, yeah, I'm not going to call them. What would I say? I'm not calling them. I don't have anything to offer. Or what do we do? I mean, we're Americans. We entertain ourselves to death, don't we? We we avoid the mourning and the brokenness of this world by just turning out and just entertaining. Or, Or even better yet, escaping it. Do you use any of those mechanisms to avoid the the mourning and the poverty and the brokenness of this world, of ourselves in this world? Because Jesus promises if you will engage this poverty of spirit with mourning, you will be comforted. See, the amazing thing about this is the assurance of being comforted. If I told you that you would receive something if you entered into something, you would go, I'm more likely to enter into that. I've been promised that I'm going to receive it. This idea of Jesus providing comfort, it's not straight from the Beatitudes first and foremost. The prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 40, he says, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. Tell them that their warfare is ended. Listen to what it says. It says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God is a God who pours out his comfort. But Jesus says, those who will engage the world with mourning, our disposition toward the world, toward our own selves, And our poverty of spirit, our inner disposition ought to be one that responds with mourning and the promises that we will be comforted. I used to sing a song about the Holy Spirit. It said, Counselor, Comforter, Keeper, Spirit we long to embrace. You offer hopes when our hearts have hopelessly lost their way. Yes, we've hopelessly lost our way. Do you mourn? over the world, the promises that we would be comforted. And the last one is blessed are the meek. And what does it say? For they will inherit the earth. Do you see how the poverty of spirit and the recognition of that poverty in our inner being as those who would connect ourselves to Jesus? Again, Jesus, the kingdom of the king of heaven has come onto the earth and he sat on this mountain and people are drawn to him and immediately and rightfully so, they sense their poverty of spirit. 
And they engage that with mourning and that moves them toward gentleness and submissiveness, deference, humility, and admitting that the answer to our problems doesn't exist within ourselves, but has to come from the outside. That's what meekness is about. And you guys, this is this week where this has absolutely crushed me. You want to know why? My anger and my pride demonstrate to you that I live, I could live your life better than you can. I can drive your car better than you can. I can engage with the things that drive you crazy better than you can because I see in myself anger and pride. But what is talked about here is a meek orientation. I see the poverty in my own life and I mourn it. And if there's a solution to this poverty, it's got to come from outside of me. That is meekness. One of the examples that we've just recently seen in Ezekiel is when God calls Ezekiel to the valley of dry bones. Do you remember this? And he says to Ezekiel, is it possible for these bones to live? And in meekness, how does Ezekiel answer? Ezekiel says, you know God. I don't know. I can't make that happen. But you know. The promise here is that the meek will inherit the earth. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? Because maybe there's nothing that feels like it stands out more to us in, in these few Beatitudes than that meek people would inherit the earth. Meek people are crushed in our economy and in our society. Meekness is crushed. How many of you filled out an application recently and what was highlighted in that application in your job performance review was your meekness? Your submissiveness, your, your ability to say, hey, look, if, if the answer is to come, it's got to come from outside of me. Right, this idea of meekness is, is in completely counterintuitive of being blessed in this world. Poor in spirit, mournful, and meek are blessed. When is the last time that you saw a Disney cruise <laughs> that was advertised, come with us, cruise with us, and we will help you recognize how poor in spirit you are. We'll help you mourn the, the depravity in your own heart and in, in, in the world around us. We'll encourage you to be meek, <laughs> right? It's ludicrous to think of. And yet this is where Jesus says these are blessed. The last thing I want you to see is the culmination of this in the very last of these first four Beatitudes, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This last Beatitude is a culmination of the three preceding that describe the inner disposition of those who recognize the King of Heaven has come to this earth and recognize who we are in light of who he is. What this world is like in light of what it was supposed to be. Who engage with it in mourning. Who say, if there's a solution, it's outside of me. I can't make it happen. And Jesus says, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A great way of understanding righteousness is everything rightly related. Do you know another word that describes that? Shalom, peace, right? Everything in its right relationship. Think about that box of Legos that exists in my basement versus the box or versus the Lego sets that exist in Willa Jane Minan's room. Everyone is in its right place. It's in a baggie. It has the directions and it's in the slot. You come to my house and we must have 10,000 Legos in this big bin. And there's nothing that gives me the creeps more than 10,000 Legos in a big bin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for all things rightly related, for they shall be satisfied. We end with a few more questions. What do you hunger and thirst for? And you go, what what do you mean? Well, Well, stop for a minute. Honestly, what do you hunger and thirst for today? What do you want more than anything else? What is it? is that there would be a stressor in your life that goes away. Is that what you hunger and thirst for more than anything else? Is it that someone who is close to you would be relieved of their suffering? Is that what you hunger and thirst for more than anything else? What do you hunger and thirst for? Jesus says that the goal of the inner disposition of the Christian in the presence of of the King of Heaven is hungering and thirsting that everything would be made right. Unlike the most interesting, or maybe like the most interesting man in the world, Jesus calls us to stay thirsty, to hunger and thirst. Let me ask you a question. When you think about those things, poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, where do you fall off that continuum? And where do you see, I don't don't see that in my life. I don't see that in my life. Which is missing? Well, I would encourage you that if you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, for example, it's highly likely that you're not very meek. At least when I look at my own life, in the absence of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, my pride makes it so that I really what I want is people just to listen because I can correct that if they would just listen to me. Versus the meekness that says, to, to, to see this world made the way it's supposed to be, I need something to come from outside of me, and I long for that to come. That there is a reality of being able to hunger and thirst for everything to be made right. These Beatitudes are connected. We're about to switch, and the Beatitudes that follow really talk to us about how we relate to the world and others in it. And I hope to show that to you next week. But these Beatitudes are about our inner disposition. The question, again, haunts us. Are we teachable? 
I believe that in these Beatitudes, Jesus is saying there is a right perspective of self in the world in the presence of God. There is a right perspective that we as human beings ought to have. I've told you about that T-shirt that my buddy made for me, and all it says is across the front is this big word, H-E-L-P, right? It just says help. He would say that that is the most perfect prayer that we could pray. And I do believe that prayer is one of the ways that we can know. Do we really understand the poverty of spirit that we have and that impacts the world around us? It reminded me of Isaiah 55 again. Do you, do you know those verses in Isaiah 55, how Isaiah writes and he just says this, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in the richest of food. Jesus is the king who has come to this earth. The kingdom of heaven has come, Jesus says. And Jesus is the one who says, come to me. Come to me. He said, blessed are you who are poor in spirit and who engage that with mourning, the result of which is a meekness that creates in us a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. Jesus says that I have prepared a table for you in the wilderness to feed us, for we will be satisfied. And how can he say that except he knew he was going to come and die for those who were poor in spirit. He knew what he was going to do for us to bear the sin that is ours, the sin that mars this world, and to defeat death and in so doing to be able to restore all things. That's what this table reminds us of. It reminds us of our hunger and thirst and our longing for things to be made right again. I want to just close with an illustration. I got it because of a song that I love to sing, which some of you know. But I want to tell you about this Irish Anglican priest. His name was John Monsell. Excuse me, the Reverend Dr. John Monsell is who he was. 19th century, early 19th century. He was a priest um, and he had a rough life. He lost his oldest son at 18 years of age. He also lost his oldest daughter when she was 28. John Monsell actually died in an accident at church. <laughs> they were building a new church, and he had climbed up into the church and fell and died as a result of that fall. John Monsell wrote a song that is very dear to me. And it simply says this, I hunger and I thirst. Jesus, my manna be, ye living waters burst out of the rock for me. Thou bruised and broken bread, my lifelong need supply. As living souls are fed, oh, feed me or I die. 
Thou true life-giving vine, let me thy sweetness prove. Renew my life with thine, refresh my soul with love. For still the desert lies, my thirsting soul before. O living waters rise within me evermore. I love that song. I read a critique of that song and also of all of his songs. Listen to what this writer said who critiqued it. I just kind of scratched my head. Dr. Monsell's hymns are as a whole bright and joyous and musical. But they lack massiveness, concentration of thought, and strong emotion. A few only are of enduring excellence. In the light of that beatitude that he wrote about, I want to ask you something. Do you think that John Monsell cared what that guy thought about him? <laughs> I don't think so. And why? Because John Monsell was blessed. Apparently from his writing, we can assume that he was blessed because of his poor poverty in spirit, his mourning spiritually, his meekness and his hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He was blessed because his is the kingdom of God. He is comforted. He will inherit the earth and he has been satisfied. Is that true of you and me? Is that true of us? Let's pray.